0: So question for you, are you someone that has your favorites? Do you have your favorites? And by that, uh, do you have your favorites when you go to a restaurant? Like you always get the same thing. Like you go to this restaurant, that's what I'm going to (laughs) get. Yes, there are some people. People who do that kind of thing are sometimes called (laughs) non-adventurous, predictable, or even boring. I am one of those people. I, I love to get, I, you know, if there's something I like somewhere, I'm going to get it. Why fool around? Why take the chance of getting something new that I don't like? Uh, when I go to Chick-fil-A, it's always the spicy deluxe uh, chicken sandwich without the tomato. And uh, I'm never dissatisfied. Always happy with that. Way station in Newhall. If you've ever been to that little coffee shop, they have something called the Chris Special. Don't have to look at a menu. I always get the Chris special. I introduced Brad and Frank Romero to it the other day. It's basically eggs and bacon and English muffin and hash browns and then gravy over the whole thing. So it's, it's fantastic. And then to Del Taco, I always, always, these are the restaurants I go to. I don't know where you guys are going. The spicy chicken burrito. It's fantastic. You can get two for $7. It's a great deal. The other day, I didn't have a lot of time for lunch. I was picking up some spicy chicken burritos. So I go to the intercom, the drive-through at Del Taco, and I say, hey, two spicy chicken burritos, please. And the lady on the intercom says, oh, it's good to have you back again. I'll put those scorcho sauces in your bag for you. And they know me at this Del Taco. (laughs) They know if someone orders two spicy chicken burritos, well, it's got to be me. So, you know, there's some benefits to always ordering the same thing. I have, I have my favorites. And if you haven't tried the uh, spicy chicken burrito at Del Taco, well, there you go. There's a the recommendation. Now, having favorites at restaurants, as far as I know, there's no verse saying we shouldn't do that. I think that's okay. Okay, so if you're one of those people like me that does that, that's okay. But Scripture does talk about favoritism. Favoritism, now that's a different topic, and that's what we're looking at today. We're going to be looking at James chapter 2. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there to James chapter 2. And what we'll see there is the sin of favoritism identified and rebuked. Okay, now favoritism, what is favoritism? Let's make sure we defined it correctly. Favoritism, according to Webster's, is the unfair practice of treating some people better than others. Okay, that's according to Webster, the unfair practice of treating some people better than others. Now, in our verse, if we look at James 2.1, you'll see the Greek word translated a few different ways. In the New American Standard, it's translated personal favoritism, and that's more the word I'll be using today. But a synonym to that would be partiality, what the ESV uses, and the King James used respect of persons. The actual Greek word there in James 2, and I hope you have your Bibles open there, when you see personal favoritism or one of these other words, the actual Greek word literally means to receive the face. So it's literally to receive someone's face. And the idea is you're accepting or rejecting a person based on their external characteristics or their external qualities. And The implication with favoritism, of course, is that it shows favor to one at the expense of the other person. And here in James chapter 2, and we'll uh, get through as much of chapter 2, I don't know if we'll get through the first seven verses or maybe just the first four, uh, but we're going to look at how favoritism is inconsistent with genuine faith. If you have genuine faith in Christ... You're not going to play not going to have partiality, not going to have favoritism towards people. So the context, as you recall, we're going through the Book of James, we're looking at all these marks of genuine faith. These are ways we can, number one, test ourselves to see if we're in the faith, but number two, as believers, evaluate ourselves to say, "Am I living consistently with the faith that I profess?" We looked after the greeting, a genuine faith considers trials as joy, and we looked after that, a genuine faith receives the word. And now we're going to look at how genuine faith loves without favoritism. And this section, this topic that James is going to address, covers verses 1 to 13 of chapter 2. So I want us to read that to start off with the whole section, although we won't get through all of it today but just so we see the entire argument that James makes here. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a man, a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So in this important passage here, that we look at in James chapter 2, James is going to give us four reasons that favoritism must never be present in the life of a follower of Christ. He'll go through these four reasons that if you are a genuine lover of Christ, you are not going to be one that can be accused of favoritism. So what we'll see to start with is, in verse 1, favoritism is incompatible with faith. Secondly, we're going to see that favoritism is immoral in verses 2 to 4, where he gives an example or illustration. Verses 5 to 7 show how favoritism is irrational. And then number 4, we'll see how favoritism is irreconcilable with God's law. So for these reasons, we see very clearly why a true believer is not going to be one that shows favoritism. But let's jump in here. Let's look at this first one. Favoritism is incompatible with faith. Verse 1 again reads, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now he starts off, chapter 2, with my brethren. And as we've seen in James already, that is usually how James starts a new topic. If he's going to address something new, he'll start with my brethren And then usually give an imperative, some type of command. And this is no different. So he is starting off a new topic here. Now, not every time does he use my brethren as a new topic. We'll see that later when we get to verse 5. But here he does indeed. We see it is something new. But not only it just happens to be a topic starter, he's wanting to be personal and address them lovingly. My brethren. Not, hey guys. It's my brethren. He's making an urgent appeal for those who claim to be followers of Christ. These are written to people in the churches. They're written to people like you and me, people who sit here on a Sunday. And he says, my brethren, this this should not be that you hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ in an attitude of favoritism. And so to believers, we need to take that seriously. Am I doing this? But secondly, if that marks our life, we've got to question our faith altogether. So after he says, "My brethren," we see his new theme here is going to be that of favoritism." So what's helpful, I believe, in this verse is to look at the kind of the literal or wooden uh, translation of the verse. It doesn't read smoothly when you translate it very literally, like I did here on the screen, but it does help us to understand it better, and so we understand why the translator smoothed it out for us, but there are some insights, I believe, in this passage if we look at it very literally, and the way the word order goes in the Greek is this. Do not, with personal favoritism, hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one. And I think in that, we're going to understand why looking at that particular word order is helpful, which is the word order of the original. And after he's saying, my brethren, he talks about in the literal, do not with personal favoritism. So he starts off right away. This is the topic I'm going to be addressing, this personal favoritism, this idea of receiving someone's face to accept or reject the person. This is what he wants to address. Now, the Greek word that's translated here, what's interesting is you do not see this Greek word in any non-Christian writings. It only is found in Christian writings, and in fact, since James is the first written book of the New Testament, as we've talked about before, this is the first time we see this word in the, the manuscripts that we have today. James is using this word. Now, we see it used uh, in later years in other Christian writings but not before this. And certainly the concept is not new. We see this concept uh, throughout the Old Testament as well, and certainly we understand what he's talking about here, to receive the face, to accept the person. It was probably used in their vernacular, but he uses it here. And this can be an issue, as you know, both inside the church and outside the church. Certainly we see it outside the church as well, where someone who has status... Or wealth or influence, some level of popularity, or perhaps by their appearance, they get special treatment and maybe you've seen this uh, in restaurants. maybe you've seen this uh, on an airplane. I we used to have or I had read an article on on the internet uh, <laughs> on the web, um, that said, we always used to do these long flights, right? We lived in China. And so we were flying back and forth, and we were always, of course, in coach, but wanted, you know, what if they bumped us up? Wouldn't it be great to be bumped up, business class or to first class? And I had read an article that said, you dress really nicely, and they're more likely to bump you up to a higher class. (laughs) So one particular time, we were leaving Beijing, and so we got kind of dressed up a little bit. But of course, no, we didn't do that. (laughs) It didn't happen. Be a better story if it actually works, but sadly it didn't. We uh, we stayed in back for the uh, for the flight, but in theory at least, I'm told sometimes that works uh, on an airplane. Uh, maybe less now than it used to, but certainly in life we see that happening. And what James is going to point to in verses two to four is, you know, that happens in the church a lot of times. Is that we treat people better if they have money, or at least we think they have money, or they're Popular or important, in our view, then we'll treat them a lot nicer. And I hope we are all honest enough with ourselves to know that, hey, you know what? Maybe sometimes I do this. When I'm meeting someone for the first time, if I, if it seems like, boy, they can do something nice for me. Uh, if this is an important person, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little nicer. Because who knows what they might be able to do for me. And that can't be an issue with us. And I want to think, as we talk about favoritism, to step back and say, why are we inclined towards this? Why is this natural for us in our fallen natures to have favoritism, to show partiality? Why do we do this? So think in your minds, why, why could that be? I came up with a couple of hard attitudes that I think can be behind this. One of them is self-interest, as I already alluded to. We're prone towards selfishness. I think from the moment we're born, we're looking out for ourselves. And as believers, although we're striving towards Christ's likeness and we're striving to put to death the deeds of the flesh, this selfishness is one that we need to continue to work on and continue to work to kill off. We're not yet fully sanctified. Sometimes we can tend towards favoritism. We want to be in an important person's good favor. Okay, well, hey, he's a big shot. If he knows me, then people will think I'm important as well, and I can get some kind of popularity by association. Um, and so we'll, we'll seek that. Hey, you know who I'm friends with. I'm friends with an important person. Uh, perhaps we want some gift from that person. Well, I know that person has season tickets somewhere. Uh, I know that person has a really nice house uh, up in Mammoth that he lets people use, so I'm going to be nice to that guy so I'm not in a tent in the mud, Um, (laughs) which I'm looking forward to. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) I am doing that. (laughs) The point is we can be nice to people when we think they can do something back for us in that way. Um, Perhaps it's being nice to someone the opposite gender because they're beautiful and good-looking, and we want the attention from that person. I'm speaking to you singles out there particularly. But do you show favoritism based on the external appearance of someone? Or perhaps we show favoritism because if it's someone who looks really needy, uh, maybe financially needy, or they got problems in their life, oh, I don't want to have to deal with that. I don't want to have to spend my time and possibly my money to help this person who's needy. And so we'll shy away. We're Again, these all come from a heart of self-interest. What's good for me or what is bad things that I can avoid? And we must be careful not to do this. Uh, we can think of what Christ said and how our propensity is to love those who love us. In Luke 6, 32 to 34, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. And isn't that true? That we can be nice to those who are nice to us. Oh, what a nice thing I did for that person. Eh, Now I hope they do something nice for me. It's self-interest that's at the heart. So as we think of putting to death this sin of favoritism inside of us, get to the heart of it, get to the root. Am I, at my core, selfish in my thinking? Am I constantly looking out for myself and how things could be better for me? So I think that's one reason we're inclined towards favoritism. Second, I would say is fear. We may avoid others because they are different from us. Because it's someone that I, I I don't know what to say to this person. And I think part of that, that's a big uh, issue with racism. Is that we can have favoritism towards someone of one race instead of someone of another. Someone of one skin color or from one nation more than another. And I know in our current culture, there's the woke culture and things that are going on and black lives matter and there's crt and all these things and we want to say well those those are bankrupt those are full of unbiblical ideas and you know what they are but racism is a sin and we can never forget that and we can never shy away from that truth to treat someone on the basis of their skin color on their nationality that is wrong. God hates that. And we must remember that. That is, that is a type of favoritism. And so when James 2.1 says, do not hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism, it includes racism. And we must root that out of our lives. That must not be named among us as Christians. Every person is made in the image of God every person, and before the throne of God one day, as Revelation 7-9 points to, there will be a great multitude praising Christ from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. So it could be a a fear that causes this favoritism that is known as racism, to say, "I, I just don't know. Well, that love breaks that fear and reaches out to people even that you don't know well. And you do struggle to interact with it first. So I don't want to shy, shy away from that at all. Is that favoritism can include racism. We must put that to death. So these are attitudes behind favoritism and there may be more. And you've got to examine your own heart. If you see evidence of favoritism, treating people solely on the basis of their skin color, how popular they are, their status, their wealth, then, then examine your heart. What is the heart attitude you need to put to death? But let's go back to our verse here. Again, James 2.1, and again, the literal, do not with personal favoritism hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one. And here James points out the inca- incompatibility A favoritism with faith. Now, how it reads in, if more literal, is the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, not your faith. And why it's important to understand that it's not talking about your level of belief, your level of trust in God, how great is your faith. It's talking about the faith. It's speaking of the gospel, the truth delivered for us in scripture. Do not hold with personal favoritism the truth of the gospel, because the gospel, we, as we understand from God's word, is so contrary to any kind of favoritism. So we must not think that we can have the faith and also have favorites. And as we think of, okay, well, what, what is it about the truth of Christianity, about the truth of the Bible that contradicts favoritism? Well, I jotted down six things, and sure we could think of many more. But why favoritism cannot harmonize with the Christian faith? First is this, God is holy and righteous and does not show partiality. He is the creator of all mankind, and he has made men and women in his own image. That's a foundational truth that we believe as Christians, that God made every person in his image. So how can we have favorites? It doesn't make sense with what we know of the gospel. Secondly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each person was born in sin and practices sin, no matter how rich or influential or what skin color he is. While man looks upon the outward appearance, God looks upon the heart. We all believe this to be true, those of us who know Christ. There is no room for partiality in either the character of God or in the sinfulness of man. Third, each person, no matter how rich or or poor or what nationality, must confess their sin before God, repent and put his faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. When a person does this, God will forgive and will save. The reality of how one comes to know Christ is in a right relationship with God. Having forgiveness of sin does not matter how much money you have. Does not matter how many people know your name doesn't matter what language you speak or what skin color you are, it is the same for each person. So to show favoritism in those externals is contrary to the gospel. Next, true believers recognize that every blessing they have, whether it is spiritual or material, is a gift from God. And there is nothing that a person has they did not receive from God. We saw that earlier just in James chapter 1, 17 to 18, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. So to treat someone better because they have more money? Are we forgetting that everything comes from God? Why is that person better because they have more stuff? Certainly not. Next, all believers are one in Christ and commanded to love one another and to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. No matter what nationality, social status, or income level. We are to love one another. It doesn't say if that person, and you love the people more, if, you know, they got some cash. Now that's antithetical to the truth that we hold to. And then the sixth one, every believer is commanded to make disciples of all the nations To proclaim Christ so that there will be worshipers of every nation, tribe, and tongue before the throne of God. So the Great Commission there, and again, the Revelation passage in Revelation 7. God is not a partial God. God does not treat the wealthy, the uh, one race, any race, as the only ones that are going to get to heaven, the only ones that are going to stand before him. And so for us to do so, it is so different from the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we cannot hold favoritism when we hold to the faith. But let's look at the next part of his phrase. Now, he could have stopped there with a sentence. My brothers, do not with per- personal favoritism hold the faith. But he doesn't stop there. What does he say? The faith in our Lord Jesus Christ in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we have to remember as we read those words, what was Christ's example? Was Christ one to show partiality? We say Christ is our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, then we better act like our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what did Christ do? Christ sought out the poor. Christ sought out the tax gatherers, those who might have been rich but were hated by society. Jesus sought out the wealthy, the criminal, the sick and disabled. He sought out women, which in that society, they were viewed lower than men. Again and again, Jesus was not one to show partiality. He's not one to show favoritism toward one class of people. How can we, saying, I hold to the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and show favoritism? It's so incompatible with, with what we know about Christ and what we know about our faith. But then he doesn't stop there. And what is interesting about verse 1 in the Greek is the placement of this word glory. And it's actually placed at the very end of the sentence. And as some commentators write, and people that know Greek better than me, this is a very odd construction in the Greek. Thrown there at the end and for emphasis. It, it gives a sense. and then right after talking about Christ, it says, the glory. And we can translate the glorious one. Well, why does he bring so much emphasis on this word and the glory of Christ? Well, the glory, first we have to understand, what is, what is glory? Now, glory, uh, depending on its context, we understand a little differently. So uh, we sang a song this morning, um, uh, sing glory to God. What is, no, my title's escaping me. To God, right to God be the glory. Thank you. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Well, yes, that's one way to use the word glory. In that, in that context, it means praise, to recognize his glory. When we talk about the glory of God, what is scripture talking about? The glory of God. Well, it's talking about God's greatness, his splendor, his majesty, all that encompasses who God is. And a couple passages help us in, that, in this. And if you can turn in your Bibles back to the book of Exodus 24. And I want you to see these passages with your own eyes. I didn't put the full passage on the screen here. But first, we're going to look at Exodus 24, verses 16 to 17. And as we know back in Exodus, here we have the Israelites in the desert. At this point, they're at Mount Sinai. In a Going to receive the law. And it says here in Exodus 24, 16, that the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud, and to the eyes of the sons of Israel. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Here we see the appearance of God's glory, what it looked like to the people being compared to a consuming fire. God's glory is not, it's not just a bright light, it's not just a fire, but that's what was visible to them. God is so magnificent, so majestic, it's like a burning ball of fire on the mountain that they see, and that is to give them an awe of who God is. Well, one more passage in Exodus, turn to Exodus 33 now, probably just a few pages over there. And Moses, in leading the people, wants God to show him his glory. He wants to see God's glory. And in Exodus 33, starting in verse 18, Moses prayed. He says, I pray you, show me your glory. And listen to how the Lord answers. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about when my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Then there's a lot of anthropomorphisms here. um, When God's saying he's shielding Moses and uses the, the imagery of a hand and to see his back. But the idea here is God's glory. Number one, we can see in verse 19, it's composed of his character and how great God is in all of his attributes. His glory encompasses all of those. But what we also very clearly see is that his glory is so great that no person can look on his glory and live. And that he has to hide Moses. And so when we talk about the glory of God, we are talking about this just amazing splendor and majesty of who God is. Now, what we cannot miss in our verse, this term glory, who is this being applied to? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the glory of God. We understand that consuming fire, that was the appearance of God's glory, that glory that no man could look on, it was embodied in the person of Christ. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in 2 Corinthians 4.6, for God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Christ is indeed glorious. And James brings out that truth here in this passage. That our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one, cannot be held with favoritism. Now, why does James want to point to the glory of Christ? Why does he make that point here? And again, special emphasis where he places the word. Why is he bringing that? Well, we'll get to that once we look at verses 2 to 4, and I think, it'll become clear on why he's emphasizing the glory of Christ. So let's look now at verses 2 to 4. And then here we will see that favoritism is not only irreconcilable with our faith, but it is immoral. And now James gives a hypothetical illustration. But certainly this is not out of the blue. It's probably something that may have happened. But he gives a story here. and says, if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, and dressed in fine clothes. And there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? In this example, you see the type of favoritism that James is directly addressing is the one of wealth, favoring the wealthy over the poor. Now, we need to understand at that time, most of the people in the church were poor. Most of them were laborers uh, out in the fields. And not only were they poor when they came to Christ, but many of their families would disown them, cut them off from their inheritance. Perhaps they were thrown out of their house or even lost their jobs by saying, Christ is the Messiah and I'm following him. So most of the people in there, in the church, were poor. Now we say in the church, and this is the early church, is is, uh, the period that we have here, but the word that's actually used here for assembly is synagogue. Synagogue is the Greek word being used here. And some would say, well, probably what's happening here, he's talking about a synagogue, this is a religious court, this is where... um, Some case came before the church and they were making decisions, where others would say, no, the early church met in synagogues because that was the place to be. It's, It's Jews who converted to Christianity. So this point is well before the ministry of Paul. So Christians are, by and large, for the vast majority part, are Jews at this point. That's where the gospel started, right from Jerusalem and Judea, before it spread out. But this is where they met. It was converted Jews who became Christians, and they would still meet in a synagogue. And that's really the best way, I believe, to understand this. This is a a case where two visitors are coming into a church service. Two people coming in, they don't know where to sit, so an usher or some member, some person wants to show them where to sit. So that is the assembly we're talking about. So the two people who come in, who are these two people? How are they described here? Well, we first. We have the man who is, has a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes. Fine clothes. This is, uh, the, the word for gold ring is a gold-fingered man is what it literally translates to. So in comes the guy, and, and that's what, how people would show their wealth back then, their status. They had rings all over their fingers, all their gold on their fingers to demonstrate that. So he comes in, obviously a sign of wealth, and then he has some really nice clothing fine clothes here actually means literally bright and shining clothing. I mean, this is nice clothing. This is the same word that's used for an appearance of an angel in Acts 10 30, that an angel came in bright and shining garments. This is the same term. So this guy's looking sharp. Uh, we would say, used to say dressed to the nines, right? But they don't say, say like, you know, he's fire or something like that. Um, I heard you say he's, he's dripped out. That's, that's the new slang that us kids are using on the street now. His outfit is dripped out. He's looking drippy, you know? So this guy, is that a new one for you guys? Just trust me. I'm, I got, you know, a lot of street cred. I'm hip with the kids. Actually, I had to text somebody to find out. Uh. <laughs> But here's the guy that's looking nice, and he's shown to a good seat. You sit here in a good place. Special attention is given to this man. Special attention. You get to sit in a good place. Now, about the same time, another man arrives, and this is a visitor in dirty clothes. It's a poor man in dirty clothes that arrives at the same time. And the usher, remember, says, you know what? Uh, you stand over there. You just stand in the back, or here's a place by my footstool, and it's literally under my footstool. But basically, you sit on the ground. Just, you're not important because you're poor. Totally different treatment, and what was it based on? External appearance. Treating someone based just on what they wore on their backs or on their fingers. And then he gets, so this all is one long sentence. It's one long rhetorical question. We get to the end of the rhetorical question here. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Distinctions is to separate from one another, to divide. Are you not dividing? Are you not separating out what should be one in the body of Christ? And, of course, as a rhetorical question, the answer is obvious. Yes, that's what they're doing when they do this. Yes, they are. And what have they become? They've become judges with evil motives. Now, what would come to mind for the Jews was the verse from the law, Lexus 19.15. You shall do no unjust, injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. To show partiality to the rich or to the poor is immoral. And he makes that clear. They become judges with evil motives. What he's saying is their thoughts, their intentions are wicked. It's not just that's a bad idea. This is wickedness. They have an evil heart when they are doing this. And need I remind us that when we judge in the same way, we have wicked thoughts. It is sinful thoughts when we do this. Now part of the reason, again, this is done is because we do not see things as they really are. In this case, it's, it's looking at distinctions to what's on the outside and not what is important. Back in James chapter 1, it talked about the brother in humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man to glory in his humiliation. That we are to look beyond the material things and look to spiritual riches Instead, that this life, these earthly things, these external things, they're going away. And we must remember what is truly important. Now, we need to be careful. It is easy when we read this illustration here to think, wow, wealthy people are bad. Look at that. James is making that clear. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not one of those wealthy people. (laughs) Well, you know what? He's not condemning wealthy people here. Look at this illustration again. Is he saying anything bad about the rich man here? No, he's not. Now, certainly there are things we should be wise about in our money and and not um, flaunt our wealth. But at the same time, what he is calling out here is those who are receiving the rich man and the poor man. This could be any one of us. Whether you're poor or rich, are you showing favoritism? It's not just the rich who are on trial here. It is all of us. Do we show favoritism, partiality to one person over another? And we need to be careful and think how that might apply to us. Now, how do we break the sinful pattern? And I'll just close with this. The way to break the sinful pattern is we need to make the right comparisons. And the problem is In this illustration, what's going on here, we see the man in fine clothes. And this is our hearts. We see that man who has money, see that person who has money. And the first thing we do, we compare with that person who has dirty clothes. And we say, you know what, I'm going to treat this guy nice because he's better than that guy. He can get me more. I can be thought of as more important if I am nice to him. So that's where we make our comparison. But in doing so, we're showing how shallow we are and how we're not understanding spiritual realities. The comparison we should be making is comparing it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that is why James emphasizes the word glory there in verse one. Do not, with personal favoritism, hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one. When we think on the glory of Christ... His majesty, how good he is, how wonderful he is, sinless, perfect, and and that we will be with him. You know what? The guy in the bright, shining clothing coming in doesn't look so bright and shiny anymore, not compared to Christ. And that's what James, I believe, why he makes such an emphasis on what seems like a word that's out of place. It's not out of place. It's a word that's put there to make a very strong point is to think on the glory of Christ. Think on how great he is and then you know what? We won't be so enamored with things of this world. We won't be so caught up with who has the money and who doesn't have the money. We'll think on, you know what? Christ deserves my praise and my obedience and I'm going to treat everyone with love because Christ deserves that. And that was Christ's example to us. Well, we won't get to verses five to seven But quickly with uh, some application, Um, ask yourself these questions. Number one, do I show preference to those who may benefit me? Do I treat one person better than another on some kind of external thing, whether it's their wealth or their nationality or anything else? Could that be said of me? Secondly, do I demonstrate kindness to the poor and those the world seems sees as less important? Am I making a point to do that? Christ made a point to do that and reached out to those. Certainly, um, and we will look at next time, those who are poor materially are often those who recognize they need a Savior. And to share the gospel, the idea of sharing the gospel with the wealthy, because then they can influence people, It's so contrary to the example of Christ. But third question to ask and something to consider is my joy, my hope, and my attention on the things that are eternal. Is that where your heart is? And that's where the work has to be done. What is important to me? Is it trying to get something good out of something by being a friend of someone or making my life easier? Or is my joy and hope on eternal things? And that I can stand before the throne with people of every status, of every popularity status, of every wealth status, of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Is that where my hope and joy is? And I hope, I hope that can be said about all of us. So, well, let me pray. We're going to finish looking at, these, at this passage uh, come August. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, how foolish we become, how foolish I become when I put such importance on material things. When I think that uh, I want a relationship with someone because what it can get me in this temporal fleeting life. Lord, may we remember Christ and our future eternity with Him and live for things that matter, and love people the way Christ did, not on the outside, Lord, but for who they are on the inside. Lord, give us the heart to do that for your glory and your praise. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.